Welcome everyone, this is Molly Rowan Leach and I'm your host for Restorative Justice on the Rise. This archive features a great conversation with the Idaho Department of Juvenile Corrections, Melinda Sonnen. She's a certified alcohol and drug counselor and a rehabilitation specialist. She shared with us a lot of tools and programming that they have implemented in their system in northern Idaho and how things are progressing in that state. We hope you'll join us live on Restorative Justice in the Rise in the near future. If you want more information about the series and the upcoming guests and the archives, look to our new uh, website, which is going to be ready at the end of this summer, 2014. Thanks so much for your participation and looking forward to seeing you in the near future. Enjoy this archive. Good evening, everyone, and such a warm welcome to all of you. This is Molly Rowan Leach. And I'm your host for Restorative Justice on the Rise. Welcome to this week's edition. Tonight uh, we are going to have an extraordinary conversation with Melinda Sonnen, who is a certified drug and alcohol counselor and specialist, rehab excuse me, rehabilitation specialist for the Idaho Department of Juvenile Corrections. She also has um, just recently been a presenter with two very specific plenary sessions at the Northwest Justice Forum. So I'd just like to say a few words. If you're not aware already of the annual Northwest Justice Forum, it's an ongoing conference every June somewhere in the Northwest. And this past June, it was held in Washington, the state of Washington, and the, the year previously in Portland, Oregon. And it's a great convening of people involved from different, from different branches of the justice field, including, of course, restorative practices in the different branches that it uh, concerns. So I just want to thank the Northwest Justice Forum, and I want to point your attention to their website at northwestjusticeforum.com. That's nwjusticeforum.com. <clears throat> I'd also like to just say a few words about the ongoing series that you are a key and essential part of. Restorative Justice on the Rise was founded three years ago, actually over three years ago, for the purpose of providing a media platform that shares tools, conversations, stories, and what's working, what's not in our current justice system. We know that restorative justice is nothing new. It's something that we've been familiar with as a humanity for ancient times, and yet we see systemically that it's really rising up, especially here in the United States. And it's, it's an honor and a pleasure both to host the speakers that come on to share with us each week. If you're interested in checking out some of the archives, I promise you that soon we will have a much updated website and a podcast on iTunes, restorativejusticeontherise.com. I also want to thank the Peace Alliance for being a continued co-sponsor of this programming and to your participation and support. Um, again, this is a platform where you can get involved in the conversation and we hope that it resembles somewhat of a real room and a real circle. So without further ado, Again, we're talking tonight with Melinda Sonnen, and she is, again, a certified drug, drug and alcohol counselor and rehabilitation specialist 
coming from the Idaho Department of Juvenile Corrections. And I want to just say a few words about what she presented, and then she can speak much further about um, the presentations that she gave about uh, Offender Victim Awareness Competency Development, which was one of her presentations, interactive plenaries at the forum recently. The second one was Developing Community Support Systems for Juvenile Justice Youth in Transition from Correctional Confinement. So before I invite Melinda to open up tonight with a little bit about her background, I also just want to thank all of you who submitted questions and um, we're looking forward to going into those tonight. So Melinda, just again, a, a really great thanks for, for being here with us tonight and um, honoring you being dedicated day to day in this field and want to just ask you if you might share a little bit of, about your path, your professional path, whatever you wish to share, what's inspired you, what got you into this field, and uh, whatever else you'd like to do to open up tonight with us. Thanks for being here. You're welcome. Um, I guess just a little bit starting out about like my path into this field. Uh, 21 years ago when I was pregnant with my youngest child, uh, there was some troubled youth in the area and I got involved with them through Boy Scouts and different kinds of things and kind of grew up with them. And <clears throat> We had one child that his dad was killed in a car accident and uh, was left in a home that um, with, with some younger people, not not really a good healthy home for him and so my husband and I decided to go ahead and let him come live with us and through the process of that um, he he was in some quite a bit of trouble and I guess through the process of that I was like I want to be an advocate for him uh, and I was a cosmetologist at the time after that kind of like looked around and and decided that you know maybe my path needs to go a different direction and decided to go back to college to become a counselor <laughs> Then, uh, you know, going into college and that, tried different areas out, got uh, fortunate enough in order to, one of my internships was done with the juvenile detention center. Um, became pretty passionate about criminal justice at that time. Um, and so decided that I wanted to add criminal justice um, as a focus on my um, degree also. So took some more classes in criminal justice and began my path in corrections through adult corrections. Uh, worked with the under 21 year old um, people in juvenile corrections. Um, I've done had a 14 year old in adult corrections, you know, at one time and just kind of like looked at that and then moved on. Um, and I've been with juvenile corrections now since 2006. Uh, in that path, really kind of like figuring out that you know some of these kids come from uh, a background that maybe they haven't been exposed to some good morals and values and stuff like that. So got really involved in, you know, helping with that. Um, doors open to get involved with the um, victim work within our facility and I've just been passionate about it ever since that. Kind of getting every door open often um, and finding mm -hmm. new things. And I think that's my, my biggest thing is, you know, do the research, find out what works or, you know, what's worked for other people and see what, how it can work for you. And so we just keep improving uh, mm. through our facility. That really kind of is the path. 
I'm getting there. So, so tell us if you would share your insights into how um, what's called restorative justice relates to your department, and maybe we can talk a little bit about uh, the specifics of what you're up to, and also maybe how you got connected with the Northwest Justice Forum. So t tell us a little bit about that, and then we'll go into the specifics of your plenaries. Um, the restorative justice to me really means reintegrative justice a lot. Um, you know, a lot of times, and especially when you're working with the youth within the facility, uh, there, there's a lot of when we're going through some of the victim awareness programming and that with them, um, and they're starting to, to realize the harm that they've caused. They, there's some guilt that comes out of that when they realize that. But then when we bring them back to the community, um, if we haven't done some restorative work in the community, um, they're not always necessarily accepted as well in the community. You know, they may have created a lot of chaos in a school system, and it's really hard, you know, for the school to open their arms if we haven't done that. So again, restorative to me means reintegrative. Uh, everybody kind of coming in and, you know, helping out and having an understanding and really feeling like that that youth has learned from the mistakes that they've made and they're going to be better citizens. Do you um, employ circle processes to do that, Melinda? Or how? I, I really appreciate the fact that you're making the point of the cause and effect aspect. And I'm just wondering what, what systemic process do you have in place um, in order to bring that, you know, bring that about? Um, so some of the things is the competency development that we do um, with the juveniles and actually going through um, from when they walk in the door, not really having a lot of awareness of how their crimes have affected others. Um, we have two specific curriculums that we go through, plus we have a pretty intensive um, victim apology letter kind of procedure. Uh, our victim apology letter procedure is not just about um, the specific victims that they've been charged with, but you know, realizing the, the ripple effect that they've caused. So to even their peers, if, if we have a juvenile that's you know, um, involved with using drugs with a peer, we talked about make them get, go through a process of writing a letter, not all the letters are sent out, writing a letter to that peer that he used drugs with and how it could have harmed them, him and, or her and taken away from you know, what, what they would have succeeded or, or had in life and then how it would have harmed that, that their peer's family member. <clears throat> We also have them go through a process where they write a victim letter to um, their their personal family and kind of look at all the harms that the chaos that they've created has caused for them. We have them write a letter to the community and how it's affected the community. And through the process, we I mean, we do a lot of, um, and I'll talk specifically to some of those, we do a lot of um, teaching about the harms within a community and, you know, adding to needing more police officers, adding to, you know, bringing in um, school resource officers and different kinds of things. So we really uh, process the level of the harms that it's caused. Um, and then, then there's specific victims. We have them write a letter to them. We also actually have them write a letter to themselves um, of how their personal crimes have harmed themselves and what has kept them back from. Uh, and mm -hmm. then their process. 
those letters are processed with their, their group, they're processed with a staff mentor, and, and then I take a final, um, with our juveniles, I'm the one that kind of takes the final look at them and goes through another process. So there's a lot of processing just around the letters. Mm -hmm. We've mm -hmm. all been... Go ahead. Go. No, I just, I was so inspired. I hope you don't mind me bringing this up right up here at the top, but I was really inspired with, with what you shared with me in the green room about the starfish. And I'm, I'm wondering if there's a starfish story and maybe you could um, explain to our circle tonight what, what you're, what what you were trying to share with me in the green room and how that might apply to a particular youth juvenile that um, ha has really perhaps been a success story in your eyes and in your experience. I have a lot of starfish stories. I think that's very <laughs> fortunate. <laughs> um, I have some that starfish. didn't make it either. Okay, so, so the idea of the starfish is there's a small little boy walking down the beach, and the waves are coming in. And as the waves come in, starfish are floating in on the waves, and they're ending up on the beach, and a lot of them dry up and, and don't make it. Uh, the little boy that's walking down the beach, he's walking down the beach and throwing them in, walking down, keeps throwing them. And an older gentleman comes up to him, and he says, turn around. And he says, look, you're, that, that doesn't matter because they're coming back with the waves. And the little boy looks up at him and walks a little while longer, picks up the starfish and throws it back in and he says, I think it mattered to that one. So my personal starfish stories, you know, coming from, um, well, one, a, a specific one, and, and, and it's a, I mean, there, there's a lot of them. So one of them, we, we had a juvenile that his life was not so, um, kind to him in and out of foster homes and and different kinds of things. We started a program in 2007 within our facility where <clears throat> we have a local fly casting organization that comes in and actually first they take the youth that we have in our facility um, that are at, at an upper level and they get to go and they get to learn to tie flies. Once they've tied the flies and gone through that process, um, then the next step is learning to uh, go actual fly fishing. So they learn how to cast and, and all of this. And, and then when they get ready to leave and graduate our program, they and graduate the fly casting program, they actually get a fly rod. This juvenile um, never been fishing in his life. Uh, and, and so when he was getting ready to get released and stuff through our support networking process, um, one of our fly casters got a hold of um, a fly caster that he knows um, was about 300 miles away and said, okay, here's a contact for you to be able to, you know, go and, you know, go fly fishing or whatever. Um, so he was able to, when he got out, contacted the gentleman, went fly fishing with him. Now, that happened in about 2008, and that used well, he's not a youth anymore. <laughs> um, it, it, you know, is is doing well now, uh, and, and so that's just one of those stories. You know, maybe that was the connection. Maybe that was the mm -hmm. little boy throwing it back in. He got to do something, you know, and mm -hmm. so he was connected back to the community again through that one little event. 
And that's kind of the story, I guess, that our program and some of the stuff work we do with them, you know, it's that one starfish. And and I I also appreciated the context um, back in the green green room when we were discussing it. Um, I just want to share with folks that we were talking a little bit about the overdriving need of statistics, um, especially as the field of restorative justice grows. And of course, um, you also mentioned something really insightful about funding, um, and you know, that a lot of times statistics and funding are tied to each other. But I would like to say that even last week when we talked with Chief Bob Richardson from the Battleground Washington Police Department, he said also, and I, I'm just I'm guessing that this is what you, you also are feeling, Melinda, um, that it's not the funding that is the most important thing. It's our actions and our working towards um, these processes that, that are causing uh, an effect, even, even if it is on that one starfish, so to speak. So um, I just I appreciate tying in some of these common themes from the conversations that we have. And I notice that a lot of times we, we go into default thinking that we can't do these things because if we can't prove it, then we can't get the funding we need. <laughs> but, but that's not always the case. Um, more often than not, it's, it's the motivation to create a new system and, and change in, um, in the way that we approach it that catalyzes perhaps the funding that then helps take it to the next level. So um, Melinda, I'd like to go into Back, well, actually circle back around to, you, you had talked a little bit about the offender victim awareness competency development. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to share regarding your particular presentation at the forum um, specific to that process? Well, just a couple things. Um, again, I, I kind of outlined our apology letter. Um, we also have created, and we use, um, change company journals for a majority of our um, cognitive behavioral work, uh, which it really is that they're based on a motivational interviewing process, cognitive behavioral, and then the trans theoretical model of change. In 2007, um, we got an opportunity um, in order to create our own victim awareness journal. And this journal is has pages full of the ripple effect and how to write a letter, or well, how to uh, understand the harms that you've caused in that. So that's kind of a workbook for the juveniles. That's one of the ways that we um, help them get a, become aware of what you know the harms that they've caused. The next one um, that we use is uh, it's called the Listen and Learn Learn um, curriculum from the Office of Victims of Crime. And it is a, because we've not always been able to get victims with, into our facility to talk about the harms that have been caused to them, it's a video presentation um, of people that have, are able to talk about their harms. Um, and what also, there's multiple, um, I mean, there's assignments that go with it, and it, it's a complete curriculum 
that it is uh, completely free downloadable off the internet. So it, it's been nice because it's structured and organized in a way that our staff that have facilitated that, um, and, and they usually become really excited about the curriculum and own it and get, get a lot more involved in it, but it's so organized and the materials are there that it can really bring out more than what we used to bring out. Mm -hmm. So that's been a nice... Can we, start, can nice we just stop there for... Just excuse me. Yep. That video sounds really powerful. And um, I'm just wondering if you have any insights uh, or observations about the effect it has on the youth. And, and I know that you've spoken about the cause and effect here, but well, well, being able to witness the, the victim's stories, the, the people who have been impacted in this way. Uh, there's a couple areas, and in, in I find it um, because we run the curriculum on a six-month basis, and there's a couple of the areas of the, the stories, the drunk driving um, story um, that, that's on the video in the curriculum that goes along with that. When that one comes out, a lot of the juveniles bring out a lot more and talk more about what has... Uh, what maybe they have done when they've been intoxicated and how they've hurt other people. So it's specific to what things that they've done and, and actually helps them, um, you know, kind of like realize that, that maybe while it was, they think they didn't hurt anybody, they, they really, you know, could have, and they're glad that they didn't, but then realize what they have. So with the way that that's set up, there's, a, I think there's nine different um videos, and, and each video is about 15, 20 minutes long, and then there's a lot of processing around it. And again, with that, as teenagers, teenagers don't understand a lot of the harm. So just getting to hear somebody talk about how they felt and what it did to them and, and, and that just makes a difference when we can't get a victim in there to, to talk with them. So Melinda, at the Northwest Justice Forum, um, you also presented a plenary, and thank you for that response, um, regarding community support systems. Um, I want to go into that in just a moment, but I would like to field some questions from folks. And one has just come in that I would like to earmark, um, just to talk a little bit about uh, the community accountability focus and the, uh, just talk, exploring the levels of um, equanimity between offender accountability focus, which is of course very important, but that the community and the victim also need to be able to come together with, with the offender for the healing of the individuals in the community. And this person is just wondering, um, what your perspective on that is in this program. And, and please tell us again where you're based. Is it northern Idaho? Yeah, we're in northern Idaho. Okay, and Coeur d'Alene? Um, actually in Lufton. Uh-huh, that's such a beautiful area. So if you if yeah. you could talk a little bit about this this first question from, from our group tonight, that would be great. Um, and then we'll go back into the plenary discussion again. I absolutely agree, and, and that really probably is the most healing piece for everybody, to have everybody be able to come together um, and talk about, you know, what, what has happened 
um, restorative conferencing, uh, which we're very new to um, within our facility, and we've attempted um, to do some restorative conferencing because, um, and the way that restorative conferencing is set up, I just believe that it would, you know, really kind of like prepare everybody um, for a healthier reintegration. If we can't, so we do a little bit of talking about like if if we can't get a victim to come in um, that is related to that, we do a lot of talking about what they might feel. So not that we have a pseudo victim, um, but we kind of go through the harms that they've caused in that. We offer um, the victims within our facility um, that are identified um, an ability to, if they would like to come in, um, if they would like to receive an apology letter. And to me, that that's one of the biggest healing pieces. Uh, and, and I would love to have more. We've worked, um, try, attempted to work with our victim witness coordinators um, th throughout the area and tried to get more involvement. And again, like I said, we're fairly new in our facility to conferencing, and, and that is our plan to get more conferences done. Mm -hmm. So I very much agree that that's, that's a big piece. Well, and I, I would... An equal uh, piece. Me. It is an equal piece, absolutely. Um, equally important. And I just want to also thank and acknowledge um, Mary for that question, comment, and just let you all know um, you bring up an important point about shining the light on restorative justice for Oakland youth, which is an extraordinary program based, of course, in Oakland, but rippling out much further than just that immediate area. Um, co-run by Fanya Davis, I believe, and she and Destiny Shabazz have been guests on this program in the past. I can't remember the exact date, but it was last fall that we were honored to have her and Destiny, a young youth leader in the programs, be with us. And there is a training video, or actually just a, simply a video, that you mentioned, Mary, that illuminates the process that we've been speaking of just now in bringing together um, in a conference process, circle process, I believe. Um, for more information about that, I believe you would just go to rjoy.org, or I think it's restorative, rjoy Oakland. That's right, rjoyoakland.org. Um, so thank you, Mary, for that. And I also want to point out, too, for people who may not be aware of the Community Conferencing Center in Baltimore, Maryland, uh, that's another great resource for an example of a process that is equally um, considering uh, impacted parties as well as those that caused the harm and the community. And one other quick resource is the film Fixing Juvie Justice, which is an excellent film um, that really goes deep into the heart of the Baltimore program I'm, I'm uh, re referring to, as well as to the heart of programs in New Zealand um, and the Wharnui process that they go through. Their, their entire juvenile justice system is based in restorative practices. So I hope those are helpful resources, and I sure appreciate you mentioning that again, Mary. Um, Melinda, let's let's take another question. Uh, I just I appreciate the questions tonight. Um, there's one that is 
along the lines of the community um, collaborative, and it's from Barbara. And she's asking, um, how, how do you interest correction department officials in collaborative community-based programs? Um, and hopefully have them interested and motivated to recognize community members providing supports to reentry processes. That would be a, a hard one. Well, I, I guess for me, because uh, um, since I've been there, our, our department's been on board um, with how do we get more people um, and that, I mean, from the get-go, uh, when I got there, that was one of the, the first things, you know, talk about how do we get more involved in the community. So I don't, I, I, I would think that, I mean, uh, I, I guess for us, the more involved we've got, the more resources we've gained. Um, and that's the point that the, the more connections that you have, the, the less stress it puts on everybody else. Um, you know, we've gotten, with working with our religious services, uh, working with um, like a local uh, goodwill department or, you know, Salvation Armies are those, the, the resources have just gotten better for us. Um, the more that we work with others. So that, that, I guess, would be the point that, that I would make. Uh, when you open doors, uh, it's it, it just the reward on the other side of the door um, helps a lot. A lot of our juveniles, because of working the, the um, support networking process, um, have been able to get um, employment upon release. And, and it was just allowing the door to be open. So I don't know that I answered that question well enough because our, I mean, we, we've always had the arms and we want to work with everybody. Mm-hmm. Well, given, given that it's so insightful to be speaking with an official working within the system such as you are, um, it's, it's interesting to hear any resistances that you've ever noticed? Um, that that's part of one of the questions that I usually ask of of the chiefs of police that I've I've interviewed on this show, and I'm just wondering if you've ever ever witnessed any resistance and and why that might be um, to what might be called restorative practices. It sounds um, like probably not. <laughs> well, we we have had some concerns from individuals. I know um, we uh, had a community presentation on regarding the support system and what you can do and what you may offer. And that, and one of the, the uh, um, ladies that came to it was very interested and wanted to offer, but she had some fears from understanding, you know, that these are our youth that have committed crimes. So she, you know, had her own personal fears, but offered financial assistance. So I mean, it, that that's I guess kind of some of the the things that you know people and for great reasons. Uh, I mean, the, there is some fear, you know, w whether it be a juvenile that has broken into homes or whatever. You know, you don't want to necessarily open your arms and have them come right back to you. But what can I do to support them? Uh, we've also and and it, we're working through that. You know, some work with a business may not want to hire them. 
but is there something we can do, you know, to give them, you know, experience uh, as far as, you know, what what is what does it take to be in this job? And so we kind of have approached it in a way that what you what you can offer in order to assist versus we want you to open your arms right up to them. Mm-hmm. That kind of answer it. Well, definitely, and I think also, if I might just add to that a little bit from my own personal experience um, here in in Colorado, on a community level, we responded to a very violent crime that was caused by a youth. I believe he was maybe 19 years old, 20 years old, and we really didn't know how to connect ourselves with the judicial system, with the representatives of you know, the, the process that was laid out before us as a community impacted by this very violent crime. And so what I would say to Barbara is basically um, that it's a, it's a, a listening and Um, a sharing process that is certainly done in a sensitive manner, especially surrounding as violent of a crime as this one was in this particular case I'm describing, but that um, we were working to, as you said, Melinda, um, find the best ways possible to create the conditions for healing and reintegration. Um, So, there, there was a DA in this particular case that was very doubtful at first of restorative justice and, and really, you know, had the typical response of it's light on crime, it has no teeth, um, show me the proof, you know, how is, how is the offender going to be able to, um, you know, be held accountable if, if, if we're going to be going this route? And so instead of trying to convince her overnight, we weren't, we weren't even as a group trying to convince her. We were hoping to listen and to um, provide information. And eventually, you know, months and even a year later, we reconvened with her and found out that, you know, her attitude had, had really significantly changed regarding, um, you know, re- regarding a restorative justice alternative to uh, even in pre-sentencing. So we, it does feel like an exploratory process at times, um, especially for communities that have never engaged and kind of connected the dots in the systems. So thank you for letting me share that and breaking into what you were sharing, Melinda. Um, so I, I just want to, again, go back to make sure that you, is there anything else you wanted to share about the uh, plenary number two here from the community support systems um, well, and supporting that bridge. Well, I, I want to touch a little bit on back on the competency development. You know, a, a real focus, and I think that it, it, it always needs to, and, and like I was saying, an equal focus. We Part of the curriculum really talks about like victims deserve to have their voices heard. Victims deserve to have their rights, you know, instead of, and, and we really, that listen and learn curriculum, victims are a big focus. Um, so, so that, 
you know, we, we want to make sure that a youth is understanding that, you know, you have impacted somebody's life. And they're, it, it, that's a, a big piece. So they, they get that right. And I think that's a piece that is very important to restorative justice. Now, not, does every victim want to have their voices heard? No. Some people may just want the financial compensation back, you know, or whatever it is. Um, but, but really it's about them. So I want to make that <laughs> kind of point. They have, deserve that. And we, we really focus on that with the juveniles. Um, they go into the support networking. Uh, again, um, wh when we began our support networking process, we kind of started and we, sometimes it's called the web or that. It kind of looked, what is a youth life affected with, both before and after, and what are the areas that we need to focus on? Um, and, and so we were pretty fortunate within our facility, we had a, a number of people that were interested in coming together in the beginning and saying, how can we help? And we created a, a network of education, employment opportunities, counselors, um, peers, AA members, some um, advocates um, for um, systems of care and mental health issues. Uh, like a school personnel, uh, faith-based, um, mental health counselors, vocational rehabilitation. Everybody kind of came to the table and said, this is some things that, you know, we need to focus on. So through that process, then we decided, how are we going to best assist this happening and get the information to people? And, and we are by no means experts. We kind of started creating um, juvenile plans created some letters and some information to share with everybody and decided we wanted some kind of support agreement process. So our our juveniles go through a process where they identify some people with their parents. We talk with them about other areas and then identify um, a network of people that can be supportive over them before when they get out. We then start the process before they get out of having the juveniles actually go through, and they do some pretty extensive plans um, within our facility, so they kind of document their 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 road to graduation within our facility. And we are a um, indeterminate sentencing, so they have to work their way out. Um, it's not determinate sentencing, and, and so they have to go through a process of what classes helped me, what have I learned about this this part of what I need to do, and they document that all within. Um, what we call their personal recovery plan. And it tells their story of what they've learned through going through our system. In our support networking agreement process, we actually send anybody that's been identified and approved, and there's a, a big approval process too. They, you know, we the backgrounds are checked um, for anybody that they've listed as peers that have to be supported by their probation officer and their um, case manager for the community and their case manager within the facility. Um, but we send them a whole copy of all these plans so that they actually get to read what the youth has said that they've, they're doing um, and what they've learned within the, the uh, treatment program and what works for them. And then we have those people, after they've read through it, 
they then sign an agreement page to say what they're willing to do. Am I willing to call him once a week? Am I willing to take him to AA or NA meetings? Am I willing to take him to his um, counseling sessions? Whatever it is. And so they have that plan. And that's basically what, what we've done with our support networking is, is really kind of getting some documentation for them to help them. Um, mm -hmm. We do some support calls with them. So if there's, you know, something that specifically somebody can help, you know, we kind of process what, what, what might you say to them? You know, how are you going to, you know, ask them for help while they're still in the facility? Um, so that, that way they start asking for help before they get out. Because a lot of times we, we have a good plan and they have a lot of ideas and plans, but when it, they get out in the community, um, they may not know how to ask for help, or they may not need, you know, know which person is best for which, uh, and that. So that's the the second plan area that I kind of talked about with our support networking. Mhm, mm mhm. Mm Thank you. And I just want to throw in there too um, another point from our, one of our participants tonight that I think is really important to address, and that's uh, holding space for. Um, ethnic diversity in the process of justice, of restorative processes, of, of um, rebalancing after crime and conflict occur, and, and also just to acknowledge the extraordinary work of Michelle Alexander um, with her book, The New Jim Crow, and with the voice that she has opened up, uh, not just in this country, but worldwide regarding um, the problem with racial profiling within our criminal justice system. And I, I just want to ask you, Melinda, what your observation has been of um, how, you know, how you're working it in your own system there in northern Idaho regarding um, tending space for diverse ethnicities in the process um, that you've been describing tonight. I guess for me, I happen to be one of our uh, instructors for our, our cultural diversity. Um, and uh -huh. so I'm, I'm highly aware um, of that. Uh, we have it with, um, I, I mean, I, I guess the, sometimes when we have maybe uh, one of our youth that parents are not English speaking, um, and that um, we have, and, and we, maybe if we don't have a translator for it, um, and that I attempt to translate everything into whatever their language is, in uh, that so that we're really aware. So it's not the youth has to read everything back to them. I mean, recently it just actually I sent some uh, support networking paperwork home with uh, one of our youth, and and his mom um, only speaks Spanish, and he said, but. Ms. Sonnen, what I want you to do is I want you to put it in English and in Spanish um, for her if that's okay with you. So we just translated all of his plans into Spanish and then also into English. And, mm. and he said, I want to with her, you know, and kind of go through things. So we, we attempt, uh, we're not, uh, in, our, in our building, we're not that diverse um, because of being, I, I guess, northern Idaho. Um, we don't have, and, and when we do, we really acknowledge, um, you know, maybe what what it is. 
uh, with our Native American population really try to make sure that you know we're working with um, you know some of what and especially with um, the support networking, making sure that we're identifying elders um, mm -hmm. that can be um, or that. Mm. So we we um, but it, ours really is on an individual basis uh, because we don't have that population. Mm -hmm. I love what you just mentioned about honoring elders and being, you know, bringing them into the conversation, um, or rather, into the system process. Uh, is there like something in place where people can can join in this process just from off the street if they have an interest in supporting youth? And you know, including obviously the recognition of elders and and olders, and holding the space for the story, you know, for storytelling, um, which brings us back to kind of an understanding of of uh, where we've where our journey has come from, and, and that we're not just these singular um, individual separate entities floating in space. Um, generally, um, or I, I guess for for um, us in our facilities, specifically with our support networking, um, when and I talk about it a lot in community um, things that I go to, um, and, and so there, there's a door open, you know. And if you're interested, you know, what can you offer? But we really rely on our religious services um, in order to kind of open the door for people that want to come into religious services. And then are there other offerings? Um, so specifically, one of um, our religious volunteers, probably about four years um, back, had a uh, masonry business. Well, he was a religious services volunteer, and then we, we talked about support networking with them, you know, and, and what we can use and what would be beneficial. Uh, and that, he, he actually ended up taking one of the Youth that was released from our facility and had him work for him, and so that that's a door, an avenue that we do use. Uh, we've also mm -hmm. had some articles in the paper, you know, and and, and left the door open um, for people that like like you say maybe a little bit off the street, uh, you know, if they want to come in. Mm -hmm. But we don't. Mm -hmm. I guess we don't have just like a sign up and volunteer. <laughs> right. Right. Well, I just want to go ahead and again um, just take a brief pause here to thank the Peace Alliance for their co-sponsorship of Restorative Justice on the Rise. And if you're interested in learning more about the Peace Alliance, um, and also the Peace Alliance has action teams coordinating in each state throughout the United States. The action teams are a bunch of uh, folks that get together by phone and decide on issues and actions that are appropriate and important to them. And uh, it's a way to convene with colleagues in the field, not just in your own area, but also on a nationwide basis. For more information about the Peace Alliance and action teams, go to peacealliance.org. And like I said earlier, this podcast and this ongoing telecast series, Dialogue Platform, really aims to, strive to uh, provide a platform for tools, education, awareness building, and much more here um, in the field of restorative justice and beyond. We've been honored to have in extraordinary speakers 
over the the three over three years that we've been going, and we really want to thank the constituency, um, the circle here tonight, and every time we get together because you are a very important part of this. I know that a lot of people that come into the room on our Thursday sessions are doing incredibly devoted work and have been doing it for a long time. So just wanting to acknowledge all of you out there. Um, I'd also like to, to just say at this point, if anybody has uh, a live question that they'd like to ask Melinda tonight, please press 1 on your telephone keypad. Um, I'm going to go ahead and go back to another question. Uh, Melinda from Elizabeth, and again, if you do want to ask a live question and get get involved in the dialogue tonight, press one on your telephone keypad. So Elizabeth is asking, um, she's a prison volunteer with the Alternative to Violence Project, and she facilitates AVP workshops in prisons. She says she'd like to work with folks returning to the outside community as well. But in Massachusetts, there is a rule that forbids prison volunteers from having any t contact with ex-inmates. So how, she asks, how's, how does that work in Idaho? And how can we possibly get the Massachusetts Department of Corrections to make an exception to that rule? Um, we, I mean, uh, and that, that might be a little bit different to answer. Um, working in the community, we do not do a lot of work in the community um, with our youth. Um, specifically looking at, um, you know, the, with, with the confidentiality, um, ethical guidelines of being inside, outside, um, going to events or activities. Now, that that's something different. You know, if a youth comes, I work with a, a National Recovery Month event, and I have a number of our past youth come to that. And it, event based um, is it, a lot um, different. We another thing that we do is uh, if we have contact with the past youth, um, we have a where we we let our supervisor know that we've had that contact and what it is. Um, as far as that, but specifically working directly with them, um, we don't do a lot of that. Our, our, what we kind of really kind of work on is transitioning them to the other support. Um, sometimes, particularly because of um, too much connection to us, uh, and that it's not always beneficial for them when they leave our facility. Now, that being said, we have a number of youth that call back into our facility and talk to staff and generally staff, you know, talking about how is everything going, you know, how's your groups going or whatever it is. So as long as they're calling within to the facility, that has been approved. Um, but not, not necessarily doing outside of the facility stuff with them. So I'm not sure that I could answer that question. Mm-hmm. Right, but uh, thank you, Elizabeth, for that question. And I, I would probably suggest to you perhaps reaching out to someone such as Fleet Mall. Um, he's with the Insight Prison Project. He's been on this series as a, a guest speaker in the past. You, maybe you're already aware of that project, 
but that might be a good resource for you for that particular question, um, given that they're working inside um, and probably even in the area that you are residing. So I uh, hope that's helpful. Now, um, there's a couple other questions that we want to get to, Melinda, tonight, but I'd like to go to a bigger picture discussion just really briefly about the state of Idaho and also just acknowledge and appreciate the great work that people are doing in Idaho regarding restorative justice and implementing it, integrating it within the systems. Um, I had the pleasure of meeting some folks from southern Idaho at the Portland Northwest Justice Forum and just uh, want to appreciate the, the great work that's happening in, um, I believe it was Twin Falls, Idaho, uh, with the youth systems there. So getting to my question, uh, would you share with us a bit about your take on the state of Idaho um, and where it's going with restorative justice and with implementing more practices such as the ones that you, you've shared with us tonight? Um, what are the, the, some of the pitfalls and challenges, um, some of the successes that you're seeing? What, what does the future look like for Idaho and restorative practices? absolutely believe we're moving in a direction and and very quickly and and you mentioning twin falls um it, it that area um we have judges that are involved um from the bench are asking uh restorative questions to the youth or you know people when they're when they're coming up to the bench with conferencing type questions what were you thinking at the the time of the crime, what have you thought about since, you know, they're really doing it. And we're moving in a direction of um, really looking at that restorative piece, making sure that we open the door, um, I believe in Idaho, for people to be involved and feel like it's a kind of a safe place to be involved. Um, you know, so offering with conferencing, uh, Idaho has worked really hard on getting a number of uh, restorative conference trainers throughout the state. Um, so we have a number of trainers throughout the state that can go help assist with training and, and circles trainers. Um, you know, so a number mm. of people that can go help and we don't have to travel, um, you know, a long distance in order to get um, training in restorative conferences. Again, I was fortunate enough to be, I, I was able to become one of the trainers of that, of restorative conferencing also, and you know, planning on uh, doing a training in northern Idaho um, in the end of August, beginning of September, and, and in encouraging, you know, even bringing in school personnel. So mm -hmm. in Twin Falls, brought in school personnel into the restorative conferencing. Our, our local within Lufton, they do all of their, they do a lot of restorative conferencing pre-adjudication. Um, and so pre, I mean, it's like their deterrent program. And getting some of those conferences done has really made a difference. So I really think Idaho is moving in a good direction. A lot of focus on, you know, how, how do we make sure we have everybody at the table that needs to be at the table and supporting everybody. Mm -hmm. and, and a pivotal word that you just mentioned, um, which is key, is safe, safely and respectfully. Yes. Um, 
you mentioned some training that you're going to be leading. Could you share a little bit more about um, about that and where? Because we, we've got quite a constituency from Idaho live with us tonight. Um, can you share where to find out more information about that, if it's available to educators or who exactly can come to it? Um, it has not been set up yet um, specifically, but it will be on restorative conferencing um, and it will be in northern Idaho. Well, again, we have trainers throughout the state um, for restorative conferencing um, that are, are hosting trainings. Uh, I don't know if we have a uh, specific site. Generally, what, what I've done in order to get the word out is contacted our Idaho um, Department of Juvenile Corrections Commission. And uh -huh. I'll look at it quickly to see if I can pull that up. But that on that website, they they will, you know, that, that would be a place where you might be able to find out when the next training is that somebody within our department would be giving. And um, are you... In Idaho, do you have a restorative justice, like a statewide coalition? I know that many states do have that in place. Do you have that in Idaho? I'm not sure that it would be called a coalition. We have a, um, a I guess, a connection. Um, in uh -huh. September, first week of September, there is a meeting of... Um, which is the Idaho, it's the Juvenile Justice Association um, annual training, and they are having a meeting at that. So I'm that, you know, looking at maybe that's going to help with um, the conferencing. Uh, mm -hmm. there, we mm -hmm. do a lot of emailing. <laughs> So, yeah. <laughs> well, it's probably, probably not. Uh, it's probably around the corner. It sounds like it sounds like there's a lot happening in the state, and I wouldn't be surprised to see a coalition forming in the near future. From what it sounds like, um, and I also want to acknowledge. I believe you have a really great leadership team at the IDOC up there. Um, your director is a, a, a really extraordinary person, I believe, and has a lot of belief in. Uh, restorative practices, so um, and interest in exploring those avenues. I believe his name is Rinky. Is that is that correct? That's that's adult corrections. Okay, that's adult um, corrections, right? Okay. Yeah, we're, we're juvenile, and and yeah, right, Brent right, right. Was, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mr. So he was our director, um, but I I also I mean you could have said the same thing about our director. She definitely has mm -hmm. a interest. Well, so we are so. getting close to the top of the hour, and I want to acknowledge one more question here as far as uh, what's come in from our, our group gathered tonight. Um, and Nancy asked a question about how this is integrated, how the, the types of programs that you've been, we've been discussing tonight. Uh, are they integrated county by county, court by court? Um, let's just say you know you started from scratch up there in northern Idaho. Um, what would be the best way for for these programs to to spread? Thanks for that question, Nancy. Um, for us specifically, um, competent, the competency development um, piece. 
the statewide journal, um, that was a Department of Juvenile Corrections um, across the state. Um, every facility sent a person to say what they wanted to be to have in that journal. Um, and so we, that is our, our uh, department's victim um, awareness curriculum. And then the listen and learn is specific to our facility. I'm not sure the, the other facilities have begun using that yet. Um, they have some other processing. Because we have three facilities, and then we also have contact, contract providers um, that we, for specialized programs. Um, so mm -hmm. the, the competency development um, is specific to us. And all youth are committed to the, with their, go, they go through the county, so there's a county process where they can stay within the county. Um, and then once they're committed to the state, um, then they would be going through that curriculum. Now, the mm -hmm. support networking is also specific to our facility. Um, and so if a youth comes to our facility, uh, then that's where they'll get that. Now, that does not mean that the, re the other facilities are, are not, you know, doing some support work um, with theirs, with the youth that go through their facility. So again, because we're the bifurcated system in Idaho, it goes county, us, and then they actually go back to their county after they're released. Um, some juveniles will be, well, the majority of them will be on probation back with the community um, or the, the county. So we work really strongly with the county, specifically while they're in there, and and they're always in con we're in contact with whatever county we're working with as far as the support networking and, and who do they approve. Because we would never mm -hmm. approve anybody that they would not say. So it it, it kind of is statewide, but specific for the youth that comes through our facility. Well, it's Thanks, been a great it's been a great pleasure to have you with us tonight. A real honor and just. Um, thanks for all that you do day to day. And I just wonder, is there anything else brief in brief as a closing comment that you'd like to share with us before we close tonight? As I said to you earlier, I just appreciate that you're doing what you're doing, getting the information out so that there is a place, I, I guess for me too, to go look and see, hey, is this something that we can implement or something we can look at? And how did that work? And getting the opportunity to hear from um, those that are working it, you know, what is, what worked, what didn't work. So thank you for making sure this is happening. It's my pleasure and it's my honor to, to do so. And I just want to thank everybody again for being with us tonight and every Thursday, almost every Thursday at 5 p.m. Pacific for the, this conversation and dialogue platform. We hope that you've had uh, an experience of learning something new tonight, and we hope that you'll share with us again in the future. I'm really excited to announce that we've booked Katie Richardson to come on with us. Um, that's going to be at the end of this month. She lost her husband, um, and she's, she uh, I believe he was murdered, and I can't remember what year. She has an extraordinary story. Um, she has been on the TED Talks, has had over 30,000 views of her TED Talk, 
and she's quite an, uh, an eloquent speaker, and we're really looking forward to hearing her story and her belief in the power of restorative justice. So without further ado, again, thank you all for being here in circle with us tonight in this dialogue, and thank you so much, Melinda Sonnen, uh, from the Idaho Department of Juvenile Corrections for sharing with us tonight on restorative justice on the rise. See you in the near future and have a great night. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.